ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Karen Hinton. Karen is the author of Penis Politics, a memoir of women, men, and power. She served as press secretary to Andrew Cuomo when he was federal housing secretary and later to New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Your book is a memoir of your life that uses the power dynamic between men and women as its through line. And it's a really unique way to tell both your story, but also the story of how cultural norms can change on the surface, but not in truth. First, let's talk about the title of your book. It's called Penis Politics. And to be honest, as a business podcast, I think the content is super important, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to use the word in a business setting. And you have a background in communication and PR. So it was a choice that was absolutely witting of all of the different angles. So was it shock, titillation, grab attention? Why that title? You're right. Some people people may find the title shocking, but penis politics is about the conduct of some men, not all men, but some men, that's much more shocking than the official name of a body part. Mm. And we shouldn't be shy about body parts. This isn't a book about men per se, but it's a book about what some men do to women who have power, control, and authority over them. So I wanted to come up with this shocking name to something women struggle with and Mm. live with a lot. And it's from small everyday harassments and abuses on the spectrum to violence and rape. You're right. It's a spectrum of things. You start your book by sharing that one of your coterie of girlfriends was, while in middle school, repeatedly sexually assaulted by a respected coach. And you all knew it was wrong and that she had been abused, but none of you reported his behavior to an authority figure. Why was that? She told us not to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He actually got upset with us by even talking about it. She said, no, 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 you cannot tell anyone because they'll think I'm lying or they'll blame me. Mm. It will be my fault, not his fault. As I say in the book, he's a head coach of the athletic department. He had power, control and authority over students, including my friend Janice. Well, what's really interesting is at this very young age, you were all witting that it was an abuse situation, but running through the options and determining the cost to you, to her, that it wasn't worth it. So looking back, going back in time, do you think the assessment was the right one? And that's a complex question, but given the time, like if you were to time travel back, would you tell her to do anything different? Would you lobby to do anything different? Or was that, given the time, probably the way to go? From the time I was 16 when it happened to today, and I'm 63, <laughs> I have asked myself that question over and over again. I have concluded that the time, 1974, was such that we didn't even 
say the word rape. We didn't even think about the word rape. And if we if we heard it, it was only when a black man had been accused of, quote unquote, raping a white woman. Mm. And that was it. So the notion that we could say out loud to the school principal, to our parents, Janice was raped was impossible. We could not do it. And if we had done it, it would, I believe it would have come back on us. It would have been a nightmare. Right. We could not have, have made it through. Now, as you know, in the book, Janice does not finish high school. Right. She leaves when she's finished junior year. We are devastated by her marrying someone a year older leaving to go live the military life because he was joining the Navy. And we were devastated by that. We didn't want her to leave. And we knew then that it was that coach's crime, that he caused it. He was the reason Janice left high school and never graduated. She could have gone to college. She could have been who knows what. She was brilliant. And I want to just say for People listening, if they are in Mississippi listening, there was no position called the head coach of the athletic department. I use that in the book. So to try to protect all the other coaches who were there and as well as the family of the man who actually committed the rape, he's passed away now. So um, I just wanted to make that clear. I think that this power dynamic that you talk about does change the trajectory of women's lives. It, regardless, it's not just the the moment, the incident. It changes career choices. It changes behaviors um, because exiting a situation is often when you go through the cost benefit analysis, that is the expeditious thing to do doesn't make it right. I think I want it. It's important for listeners, especially young women today who are listening, that this is talking about things during a time. And I think that that's also one of the other things that I enjoy so much about your book is it really is, it helps illuminate what women, why women made the choices they made, why people are the way they are, what, what was the environment, what you're operating under. A lot of young women today don't realize that women had to get permission to have credit cards, permission to get birth control that, and this wasn't that long ago, late sixties, early seventies. I think it doesn't seem that long ago to me, but I guess to young people today, maybe it's like, ah, ancient history. Um, (laughs) One of the things that really was interesting to me is that you did decide to extract something. And can you just explain what that was? Yes. We were struggling with what can we do? What can we do about this? And I came up with the idea. I said, you know, we are forced to take two typing classes. Boys only have to take one typing class. Why are we taking two? So let's go to coach and say, we want to pass that will let us skip typing, the second course, typing, so we can go hang out in the gym, go somewhere on campus, or even take the car and drive off for an hour. 
Right. Um, so we can be together and talk to each other and help each other and laugh and joke and tell dirty stories. Do what girls do at 16 mm. um, away from typing just for that very reason. And because we wanted to say we can stand out, we can be different. We can extract some little bit of power from him. And that's what we did. And he agreed. Amazingly, <laughs> he agreed well, to it. It's interesting. And I think that that also the extraction of whatever power you can is another dynamic which comes up, you know, through the course of, of your career and, and women's careers dealing with this penis politics. This was clear cut, clear power dynamic, clear age differential, clearly illegal. But as you grew up and you started to encounter things that while they may not have been wrong, they certainly weren't right. You, you know, that they maybe didn't, maybe they weren't illegal. This is what we were talking about in terms of the spectrum of things. Can you relate the incident that you had in college? Yes. <laughs> this one was a gray, a very gray area for me. Mm. So let me tell you uh, what happened. I was in an English class, a creative writing class, with an author named Willie Morris, who actually had been the former editor of Harper Magazine um, when it was in its heyday in the 60s and, and um, 70s. And he was uh, the writer in residence at Ole Miss, where I went to college. And he would invite his author friends to come and speak to our class. And one of them happened to be William Styron right after he published the book, Sophie's Choice. And so I read that book, you know, front to back twice before he came to Ole Miss to give a speech. And of course, I was completely enamored with his writing, what he was trying to say to um, uh, his readers. And I couldn't wait to meet him. Uh, and I was so shy about asking him questions. But but he came to class and then I was invited to go to a dinner party for him that evening. Um, and I got to be in the home of the niece of William Faulkner's. So I was going to hear a little bit about William Faulkner and William Starr. <laughs> so I was, you know, I was just so happy. Very to be exciting. There. Yeah, exactly. So we're there, but the lot of wine is being poured. And he talked about literature. He talked about politics. But by the time the end of the evening rolled around, he could barely complete a sentence. And Willie Morris, my uh, writer in residence and teacher, he said, um, Karen, could you drive us home? Because I've, I've had too much to drink. And so has Bill Starin. Mm. So I said, well, okay, but you know, I've got this little bitty Volkswagen a convertible <laughs> and we could open it, but it's too cold for that. Um, but I, I don't know if I can get both of you in it. He goes, no, we're used to that. You know, we can ride in anything. So I struggle with getting into my car, getting him in the back seat. Willie does help me getting him in the back seat. And we drive off to um, Willie's home. I let him off. Uh, and then I'm by myself with Styron. And we drive to the Ole Miss Inn, which is where guests often stay when they're visiting the college. And I have to figure out, and Willie specifically tells me not to make a lot of noise because he doesn't want to see anybody in the state Styron is in. Mm. 
Okay, so I'm trying to get him out of the backseat of a VW bug, which is so tiny. And he's not a small man, but I'm pulling him out and I somehow get him out of the car. I'll walk in with him holding onto my shoulders to get into his room. I put him in his room. He, he crashes down on the bed. Um, I'm taking a blanket to kind of put it over him um, because he's clearly in a in dire states at that point. Um, but he he leans up and he tries to push me down to him to give me a kiss. Mm. And I just said, hey, you know, you're a great author. I love your book. I'm going to read all of your other books now, but you have to go to sleep. You've had too much to drink. And I can push him down. I put the blanket on him and I go home. And of course, that night, the next day, I, the, the story about Janice comes to light mm. for me. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, could was there a way that Janice could have just said, get away from me, leave me right. alone. And, you, you know, you struggle with all those kinds of thoughts. And I just think it's different considering the circumstances. Well, sure. At what point did you realize, because sometimes you can, as a, a woman in these situations, because you are so focused on not being in that sexualized headspace that you don't necessarily realize, oh, that's what's going on. Was there any indication prior to that move, looking back, that there were signals that he was going to go that way? No, no, no. I think it would have been any woman who drove him home. Right. <laughs> well, know, was it about me? He was just in a very bad state. Did you and tell anybody what had happened? I told Willie about it. And what and was his reaction? He, he just kind of laughed. Oh, you know, Bill, uh, he was drinking too much. He wasn't even thinking about what he was doing. Mm. And, you know, I mean, uh, did I do I believe that? Yes. I don't think he was thinking about what he was doing. Should he have done it? No, he never should have gotten in a state that he would just turn to that and do something like that. But it's all about the the drinking and he shouldn't have been drinking so much. Willie shouldn't have allowed him to drink so much. Well, it's it's the drinking, no. it's the lowering of inhibitions, but it's also placing you in a situation. Here's a man who has drunk too much. This is a young woman. Um, this is somebody she admires, you know, and then when she says something about it, he normalizes it, which, you know, nowadays wouldn't fly. I really was disappointed in Willie because in my mind then at that point, I thought he's trying to like, he was trying to set me up, you know. Right. And and, you know, I told Willie I didn't, he should have come with me to help me get him into the hotel room anyway, whether he had been drinking a lot or not. Well, right. He's the adult. It's his guest. Shouldn't he right. be the person exactly. to do that? And so you also have a placement of you as sort of secretary, servant, um, subordinate. Now, admittedly, you're a student, but you are operating as a, a student in a classroom. You are the purchaser. You are the client. You know, this also, there's a crushing realization that flattery of your person and your intellect is sometimes 
oh, gee whiz, you were being sexualized. And what sprung to mind there is you relate a story about Bill Clinton. And that incident, as you retell it, was was very interesting to me because it really does speak to, oh, I'm having this policy conversation. This is great. He likes my mind. And then, then what happened? Then he uh, writes on a napkin, folds it up and passes it over to me while other people are talking. And I think, oh, he gave me an autograph. <laughs> no. But I open the napkin up and it has a hotel name, a room number, and then a question mark. <sighs> and I was like, oh my God, what is this about? What am I supposed to do now? Should I look up at him? No, I can't look at him. <laughs> right. So I got to get the hell out of there. <laughs> so I fold the napkin up. I go to the restroom. I throw the napkin away. I should have kept it, but I threw it away because I was disgusted with the whole thing. And then I came to the back to the room. I sat at the far end of the table for a few minutes and then I left and I did not look at him. And he was looking at me the whole time. Um, but he, I could not look at him and couldn't even acknowledge what he had done. I didn't know how to handle it. And I went home and um, later I was thinking, oh, my gosh, here I am babbling about what I think about poverty and racism and uh, low income workers. And what did he really care about that? And, you know, I was just put in that position. And look, I am one of hundreds of women he did that to. Um, but the, even the, even if it's not Bill Clinton, I, I mean, I think this what you encountered. I mean, I've had bosses who I thought, oh, he's interested in my ideas. And then I realized, oh, no, actually, he's not interested in my ideas at all. And it's a very what what that does to a woman. I mean, think about it. You left this this meeting, this offered this networking opportunity, would a man have ever been put in the position where they, he needed, where he was objectified, sexualized and needed to exit? Um, why did he feel so comfortable doing this? Well, he knew you weren't going to say anything. He mm -hmm. was, he could behave, he could cross these boundaries and you weren't going to object. You may not say, yeah, sign me up, or maybe you would, it, it's, but it's a safe gamble on his side. On your side, it's a a uh, questioning of yourself. It's a questioning of your worth. It's a questioning of what you are. You are clearly a very strong-minded person. I mean, any 16-year-old who's like, you know what, we are going to get out of typing class has some gumption. But a, a lot of women, it would just really, hmm, maybe this isn't for me. And, you know, I, I think when you start working in politics, you you notice that you're being objectified and that you're being traded as in order to get favors from other senators. And you also, in an echo to that girl who got her own back from from coach, are, are going to get the benefits that you can, the connections that you can, the opportunity mm -hmm. that your attractiveness gets you. But it's always a bit I mean, is it a bit even though you get those things, do you always feel did I really get them? Am I, am I really, is he really listening? Are they really paying attention to me? Do you really feel like you're in the room? Good question. It's so complicated because there were times when I didn't feel like I was attractive at all. I didn't think, why would anybody be attracted to me? I just didn't, I didn't have that 
um, feeling of like I was an old Miss sorority queen or something. I just never had that feeling about myself. I played basketball in high school. I just didn't think of myself as attractive. So there were times when, you know, something would happen where there was some type of sexual overture and I would get very nervous about it um, and mm. wonder wonder why it was happening because I didn't really believe why would they be attracted to me, which is something that I grew out of uh, as fast as possible. <laughs> but, but in my twenties, that's where my head was, and, and when I was on Capitol Hill, working, and. Uh, but I would get out of the room as fast as possible. I would not put myself in what I later call the the flirt or fuck moment. Right, right. <laughs> like I'm not going to do that, and because I'm too nervous, I'm too scared, and I'm I'm ashamed, and and I'm humiliated. So, but it's also it's changing. You're exiting that room. You know, you're right. exiting that room. And I, I think back, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to share a story that I haven't shared when I, I went to undergraduate school for political science. I had the opportunity for an internship at the New York state legislature. I, during my interview, the gentleman who interviewed me said, now I want you to understand the politicians, these men, their families are located other places. They're here. They will make passes at you and you can't do anything about it. Are you okay with that? This was in the interview. And I thought, "Mm, no, no, I'm not okay with that. And I never worked in politics. So this is a career. I was like, that just isn't for me. That's, you know, that's just not what I want a part of, but that's a change. You know, I was passionate. I had, I really wanted to do that. And then I just thought, well, it's just not for me. And so Mm -hmm. that's a career change. And then I had a a girlfriend's older sister who uh, Harvey Weinstein did his, his magic too. And she decided that she didn't want to be an actress, didn't want to work in anything like that. And she became a women's studies professor. But, you know, that's a, a complete career shift, a, a decision to step out, to step aside that this wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's important that even, I mean, with Harvey, that's a, <laughs> a, a transgression with my interviewer. I believe that he was friends with my father and I believe he was terrified I would take the job. Um, and just didn't want to deal with my dad if something went south. You know, it, it, it's telling though. He and made it your, he made it your decision. <laughs> well, right, exactly. You're going to do this. Uh, you know, maybe the person I am today would have taken it and said, yeah, go ahead, try me. Um, <laughs> I will make noise. Uh, but anyway, we're closing in on time. Let's fast forward to today, the governor of New York, he resigned for a pattern of sexual harassment. Question for you, Cuomo was a known bully. Do you think he would have been hung out to dry if he hadn't also been a bully to men? That is, if the men couldn't get rid of the bully, but they could take the opportunity to rid themselves of him for sexual harassment, they took it. How much do you think his bullying of men mattered in this instance? Yes, it matters for a couple of reasons. One, when Representative Ron Kim said he tried to bully me, he said he would destroy me, my career, if I said anything more about the nursing home scandals, critical Mm. of Andrew Cuomo's handling of that. 
he was the first man, I think, that ever really spoke out about Andrew Cuomo's bullying. And there was not a man in New York state politics that did not know about it already. How many people, how many men, as well as women, did I hear that from? That he was always that way, just like you said. We've always known he was a bully. But finally, one man spoke up. That helped Mm. some of the women who then spoke up. I do, well, I think I that do. they were willing to support it, that there wasn't a safe harbor for him. I mean, right. power dynamics, men can exert that kind of power dynamic. Cuomo, even when he showed photos of him hugging people, a hug to somebody who is subordinate, whether they're male or female, is a power move. You know, Mm -hmm. because, for instance, if uh, the chairman at a university walks up behind a professor and puts his arm around him and says, oh, that was great. The professor may or may not like that move. Certainly the professor can't walk up to the chairman and put his arm around him. You know, Mm -hmm. there's just some things aren't allowed. The power differential. So um, here's where we are. Everyone knows what's not on, what's not allowed. Do you think it's easier to report? It's still very difficult because of the consequences of doing it. Right. If you if you use your name, then you're you could be in the newspapers, you could be on the radio stations and TV stations, um, and so suddenly you you're identified, and then there will always be groups of people some women who will start attacking you because they like the person that you've accused of sexual Mm. harassment or abuse. That's happening today. You see it, you can see it on social media. Right. Where groups of people, and I have to say mostly women who are trying to protect Andrew Cuomo and Mm. uh, recover him. Um, (laughs) A lost cause, I would say. That is a lost cause. I do. I think I believe that. But but it's very hard to step out and say, this is what happened to me. I hope that my book and other books on this topic will encourage women to get the strength they need to go ahead and speak out, because the more we do, the less likely it will continue. And well, I wonder how you can contain. I mean, what my sort of initial question that I had written down for myself was, do you still think there's career blowback? And the absolute answer, given what you've just said, is yes, there is. And so then I almost think, okay, as as women, how do we stop that from happening? How do we not make it be that Monica Lewinsky is still known for one thing that, you know, why should she be known for that? Right. No, exactly. However, I do think conditions have improved for women since Monica Lewinsky, since the 70s, since the 60s. Um, Conditions have improved in part because of the Me Too movement, Mm. though we need to do more and we need to do it better. I do believe that when women like Charlotte Bennett, Lindsay Boylan, Annalise and other women, women who have come out. And the more they do that, the more it will encourage others to do it as well. And we have to start 
And all of us, all women and all men need to make this important in their lives because mm-hmm. they all have, a lot of them anyway, have sons and daughters and they don't want their daughter to be sexually harassed. Right. They certainly don't want their son to be accused of sexual harassment or abuse. Right. So bringing this into the family, to the dinner table and talking about it and then pushing for things to happen at the state level, the local level of governments, as well as the federal level to really deal with this problem and take it seriously. Um, And it's important then that male colleagues at work, they go to their male, other male, they see a man acting that way and say, hey, this is not going to work. It's not going to work for you professionally or for me professionally. Right. Stop. And here's why. And we, we found out through studies that Companies lose money when they're known for sexual harassment, when they when women know, as well as men know, that it's been going on for a while at this particular company or corporation. Sure. So the, more, the companies really realize it economically that it could hurt their company by news stories that come out about sexual harassment. I mean, right. every morning I wake up and I get Google alerts on sexual harassment and I I get close to a hundred a day. So Hmm. there there are, and as a result, there are more women coming forward. And I just think we have to keep doing that. I don't think that the 11 who spoke out in New York will suffer in their careers. Because I think that anybody would be afraid of discriminating against them at this point. Right. And- well, that's a real change. Then that's a that's a movement in the right direction. Uh, certainly to, to have that happen and a good note for women who are listening, men who are listening about being uh, present to what's going on and standing up and speaking up and supporting women who speak up as well. Thank you so much for taking time to join me in conversation. I really appreciate that you took time to share your story. Thank you. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>